As we prepare to hear the word of that God, let us pray together and ask Him to bless it to us. Let us pray. O Lord our God, You light our lamp and enlighten our darkness. Your way is perfect and Your word always proves true. You are a shield for all who take refuge in You. Enlighten us now by the power of Your Spirit that we may know and keep Your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in God's Word to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 3. If you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you here this morning. We've been considering a series through the book of Mark, and we've come to chapter 3, particularly verses 7 through 19, we want to consider together. If you're looking at the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1066. Between the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, the second book of the New Testament. So Mark chapter 3, and we'll begin our reading at verse 7 and read through verse 19. So Mark chapter 3, beginning our reading at verse 7, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. May He bless it to us. Uh, We begin a new section of the book of Mark this morning. Uh, The last section that we considered that ended with verse 6 of chapter 3 was a series of conflict narratives, you may remember, uh, where Jesus was having increasing conflict with the religious authorities that sought to persecute Him, and it ended with them making the decision to destroy Him and plotting the destruction of Jesus. And if you read enough conflict narratives, you might begin to think that there's nothing but conflict surrounding Jesus, that he is simply opposed by people. And I think Mark sort of resets his gospel as he begins this new section to remind us that while Christ was opposed in his ministry, while he did experience conflict, while there were those who were opposed to him, there were many who followed him. There were many who supported him. There were many who sought him out. 
that despite the fact that he was unpopular with the religious leaders, he was still overwhelmingly popular with the people. Um, But of course, Jesus, as he does so often, does not lean into that popularity, um, but actually reaffirms his mission as a wilderness mission. Uh, reaffirms his mission for us. And that's what we want to think about this morning, how Jesus reaffirms the mission that he has from his Father in this passage, where he reaffirms that mission for himself, and he prepares his disciples to go out and to carry forward the work that he has begun. So in this passage, we want to see Jesus as he returns to the wilderness, as he reveals his glory, And as he calls his 12 disciples, that's how we want to think about this passage this morning. Jesus returns to the wilderness, reveals his glory, and calls the 12. I know my third point doesn't begin with R. Um, There's nothing really I could do about that. I was always told, use the better word than the word that fits your scheme. Um, And so, of course, calling the 12 is a better word for that. Uh, So we want to think about the passage that way. We see Jesus returning to the wilderness Now, it doesn't say he returns to the wilderness. It says he goes to the sea. It says he went up on a mountain. Um, But we don't see him returning to the wilderness, so why would I say he returns to the wilderness? He doesn't do it literally, but he does it figuratively. That's what we're really being told when Mark says Jesus withdrew. Um, He'd been been gaining all of this popularity as as a healer, as an exorcist who drove out demons. But in the midst of all that popularity, he withdraws uh, from that. I was interested to hear one commentator call Jesus' withdrawal here a tactical withdrawal. Um, and that, that has military connotations, right? When a, when a, uh, you usually think of an army making a tactical withdrawal. And it's usually a fancy way of saying you've either fought to a tie or you've lost, I don't know in military history that too many armies that were victorious made tactical withdrawals. Usually it's something you do when you've not had success. And that seems a strange way to talk about Jesus here because Jesus has had all sorts of success. Even though he's been opposed by religious authorities, at the height of their opposition, he silenced them. You might remember that over there, they're questioning his, his attitudes towards the Sabbath. He asked them a question they could not answer. He silenced them. He was triumphant in what he did. Nothing that they did to oppose him in any way stopped his mission of preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, of calling people to repentance and faith. Um, nothing stopped him. Jesus has been victorious. So why would Jesus make a tactical withdrawal? He's become universally popular, right? It's one thing to be popular in the relatively small confines of Capernaum. But notice how popular he's become as Mark gives us this window into his ministry. Look at all the places that are mentioned in verses 7 and 8. These places that are often hard for us because we don't know where they are. But what what Mark is essentially saying to us is it's not just the people from Galilee who came to him. It's the people from all over the promised land. They came from Galilee and they came from Jerusalem and they came from Judea. They come from all over. This is not just a Galilean crowd anymore. 
This is a crowd composed of all of Israel and not just Israel. People come from Idumea. You say, of course, Idumea. Who doesn't come from Idumea? Um, well, Idumea was south of the promised land in the Negev, in the wilderness. That's where the Edomites had moved after being driven out of their own land. So this is a way of, of Mark saying they came from the south. People came from south of Israel to hear Jesus from Idumea. People came from across the Jordan, right? That's east of the promised land. People come in to see Jesus. They come from around Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were northwestern coastal cities, north of Israel. And so what is, what is Mark saying? They come from every direction. They can't come from the west because the Mediterranean Sea is out there. But they come from every other place, from north, from east, from south, outside of Israel. Everyone is coming to see Jesus. And so why would he withdraw? Well, in a sense, we're seeing him do what he's done before. Uh, we saw this in, in Mark chapter 135 when he was having a lot of success. Jesus withdrew to a desolate place to pray. You remember his disciples came looking for him. What are you doing? Everybody's coming. Everybody's seeking you. And that was just in that local town. Now everyone is seeking him from in Israel and all outside of Israel. And he's withdrawing. Why is he doing that? Well, for the same reason that he did that in Mark chapter 135. Because Jesus, as we said at that time, is not pursuing the normal human policy of taking advantage of popularity or building on success. He knows what the people are seeking. They are not seeking a preacher. They are seeking a healer. They're seeking an exorcist to drive out demons. But they don't come seeking a preacher. And if all he is is a healer and an exorcist, he's not going to be doing the true work of the kingdom of God, which is to preach the kingdom of God and to bring the kingdom of God into existence by his suffering and death on the cross. When Jesus withdraws like this, it's to reaffirm his mission, to resist the temptation to be something other than what his father has called him to be to remind himself that his mission in the world is a wilderness mission. Um, and of course, by doing that, to remind us, if we follow Jesus, what our mission is in the world. That our mission in the world is not one of popularity. It's not one of success. We too are in a wilderness mission. And what was the wilderness for Jesus? It was the place where he was opposed by the devil and his servants, where he faced temptation and suffering, where he was opposed by the devil and his servants, but he was aided by his father and his servants. And that's what it means to be living a wilderness existence. We are opposed in this world by the devil and all those who are in slavery to him, in service to him. That's the calling of the Christian life. It's not one of popularity and success. It's one of self-denial and cross-bearing. With the assurance that as we go through the difficulty of this wilderness existence, we go through it with the help of our God. With the help of His holy servants. 
his angels, and his redeemed saints. Jesus is reaffirming his mission here by figuratively returning to the wilderness, by resisting the temptation to be something other than what the Father has called him to do, and reaffirming what his mission is in this world. Now, does that does not mean he withdraws from helping people. Right? He knows that this withdrawal will still bring the people because there are many who are suffering and who want to come to Jesus. In fact, it's interesting in, in this withdrawal, <coughs> excuse me, he tells his disciples, prepare a small boat for me so that when I withdraw to the sea and the crowd presses in, that I have somewhere to escape so they don't crush me. Um, there are many times in the Bible that we wish we heard more about what the mission of Jesus was like. I'm always intrigued by that when I come to the end of John's gospel and you read John saying, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And when we hear that, we say, those are books I'd like to read about all those things that Jesus did, all the wonderful things that he did. And in a sense, Mark is giving us the Cliff Notes version, a summary of how we should think about the ministry of Jesus. <coughs> Sorry, as much as, he thinks, as much as we think about his suffering and his death, as much as we think about the opposition that was against him as he came to accomplish the will of his Father, he was also a wonderful miracle worker to so many. And this passage really reveals the glory of that work. The glory of what Jesus did for so many people who were suffering in this world. And it's a glorious picture that Mark gives us. Um, In verse 10, why does he have to make preparations to not be crushed? Because we're told he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Something of the glory of Christ was that if you were afflicted, all you needed to do was touch him to be made well. Anyone with a disease could touch Jesus and be made well. That word that Mark uses for disease is an interesting one. Um, If you track it back in the Greek, it really comes from a time when they would call every disease an affliction from the gods. If you were sick in any way, they would just refer to it as an affliction from the gods. And over time, that saying affliction from the god became shorthand for just saying disease. And so if you trace the root of the word, it really means to be afflicted in the sense of being afflicted by the gods with what you're suffering. And over time, that just became so synonymous with disease that they just started using the word for diseases. Now, we know that diseases are not afflictions from the gods, but I think it's interesting that Mark uses that word. Because even though affliction of the gods is an illusion... What did people with these afflictions come and find? They found the true God. And coming into contact with Him did not bring affliction, it removed it. Think of the glory of that power. That you just need to touch Him and whatever you're suffering is driven out. 
What a testimony to the power of Christ. That he did this and did it often enough that it was well known. If I'm afflicted, all I need to do is touch him. And the very touch of Christ is enough to make well. What glory to think of all those who came into contact with our Lord and were made well. And if we don't just see the glory in those who are suffering from diseases, we certainly see the glory in the demon-possessed who receive relief from that spiritual affliction. Here are people who are not touched by some god, but are touched by a devil who are afflicted with this demon possession that's taken them over. And what does the passage tell us about the demon possessed who came to Christ? Look at verse 11 and meditate on the power of the Lord in this regard. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, All they had to do was see him. A sight of Christ was enough to do what? They fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. A cry of subjugation. The sight of him was a sudden realization by the evil spirits that here is the superior power in the world. Here is the bearer of the Holy Spirit whose presence means death to them. Right? Why did the Son of God appear? Mark tells us in 1 John 3.8, the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And all the unclean spirits need to do is see him. And they see their doom. They are driven onto their faces and they cry out with terror who he is. That's power. That's a display of his sovereign glory. The sight of him is enough to drive them out. And the word of his mouth is enough to silence them forever. They cry out in their fear and terror You are the Son of God. And he tells them to be quiet. He's not come here to allow unclean spirits to make the revelation that only the Holy Spirit is here to make. He doesn't want the confession of the damned demons. He wants the confession of redeemed saints. That's why he silences them and will not let them make his name manifest. That's the glory of the Lord's ministry. That's what was happening on a regular basis wherever he went. It's the glory of what he did in this world. And what a better picture could we have of the glorious mission of Christ in the world than this wonderful picture we have of his ministry, where the whole world is coming to him, right? Inside of Israel and outside of Israel. Everyone is bringing him their afflictions. And what do they find when they come to him? That their afflictions are removed. That Jesus Christ has the power to remove all physical affliction and all spiritual affliction. No matter where they come from, 
they find relief. They find restoration. They find rest for body and soul. Could there be a better way of summarizing the glorious mission of our Lord? It should prompt every one of us to to ask the question, how is it with our souls? Do you come here this morning with affliction? With physical affliction, with spiritual affliction? The Lord Jesus is the one who promises healing, who promises restoration. We're not guaranteed that we'll be made well in the body in this life, but we will be made well. And we are guaranteed that our souls will be made well when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that same Lord who the crowd pressed just to have a touch of has come to speak to us this morning. Has come to fellowship with us at His table. He's the same Lord with the same power. It's the same glory. For those who come to the Lord, that's what they find. They find rest for body and soul. The promise of healing and restoration and help in their time of need. That's the same Lord we find when we come to Him. That same Lord who they were seeking is coming to us now. What glory we are allowed to experience, not just by touching Him and fellowshipping with Him, but having Him dwell in us by His Spirit. He's not just with us now, He's with us always to the very end of the age. What glory! And He means for that mission to be expanded. That's why He calls His twelve disciples. After returning to the wilderness and after revealing His glory, then He calls His twelve to Himself that they might continue and extend that mission. That He might bring that good, good news of the kingdom and its powerful effects beyond just His ministry, through their ministry, to the ends of the earth. And we want to notice the features of their calling, uh, because there are wonderful things that we can learn from how Jesus calls His disciples. Look at how He calls them in verse 13. And He went up on the mountain and called to Him those whom He desired, and they came to Him. That's a verse that would be worth a sermon all on its own. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to start a whole new sermon now, but I'm just saying, it was, it's a verse that would be worth a sermon on its own. Because what's true of these disciples is true of all the disciples that Jesus calls to Himself. Isn't this a wonderful statement of, of election? Of how Jesus chooses those who are His own. He called to Him those whom he desired, and they came. You know, that's still how Jesus is calling disciples today. He calls, he calls people to follow, and when they follow him, what is the glorious truth that we see? Why did he call? Why do we follow? Because he desired us to be His followers. Isn't that a wonderful truth to meditate on? That God not only has called you to follow Him, but if you've heard His voice and followed, it's because He wanted you to follow. 
He desires for you to be his disciple. What a wonderful truth that our God desires for us to follow him, wants us to follow him, and that that's why he called. That's why he gives us the power by his spirit to follow. It's a wonderful truth of how Jesus calls his disciples. And they they come to him. And what is the purpose of his calling? What is he setting them aside to do? Well, verse 14 tells us that he appointed the twelve whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him. That's the first thing that disciples do. They fellowship with Christ. What was the purpose of the disciples being with him? To learn from him. To learn from him what the kingdom of God was all about. To learn from him what his mission was about so that they could go forth and preach that mission in the world. Right, their first calling is to be with him. Their second calling then is to go out and to preach the word. To preach the good news of the kingdom. Right, that good news we were introduced to all the way back in Mark chapter 1. The good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. That the time is fulfilled. That the time for the redemption of all things is near at hand. And that you can be part of that redemption if you repent and believe in the good news of God. The good news that's revealed in Jesus Christ. They are called to be with Him. They are called to preach His word and to display His power. We're told that they are given authority to cast out demons. Uh, What is the purpose of that? It's to show that they have authority. To show that they come with the same authority of Christ. That the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And he does that through his ministers. He's going to destroy the works of the devil through these apostles. They'll go out and through them, the kingdom of God will continue to break in on this present evil age. When demons are driven out, when the good news is preached, the the gospel, the kingdom of God is breaking in on this present evil age. Uh, They share in that glory. They're all given that calling. Uh, That calling is the same for all of them, even even though we know that they had very different ministry paths. Uh, Mark identifies them all to us and gives us time to reflect on uh, the outcomes of their lives and ministries. He begins with those three men who would come to be in Christ's inner circle of disciples, So he begins with Simon Peter, who is the rock, upon whose confession and work Christ will build his church. By by God's grace, built on the foundation laid by Jesus Christ, Peter will become a pillar of the church. Um, Then we come to James and John, who are the sons of thunder. Uh, This has has invited all sorts of speculation on what this means, because whereas we're told what Peter means, what rock means elsewhere, we're not really told what sons of thunder means. And so some people think the nickname came to them because of their kind of fiery attitude towards people. They're the ones who wanted to call down fire from heaven to consume towns that wouldn't listen to Jesus. And some people speculated that's why they were called sons of thunder. 
Well, the tradition, the early church, what they were, they were called the sons of thunder because the witness of God thundered out from them. That's the view Calvin takes. Uh, Christ called them sons of thunder because he was to give them a powerful voice that they might thunder throughout the whole world. Um, I, think, I think he's on the right track. He always asserts with, with confidence things I might not want to assert with such confidence. But I think he probably has in mind the Psalms that talk about the voice of God thundering. Uh, if you look at the Psalms, it's the voice of God that's often thundering. God thunders from his heavens. Psalm 18, 13 tells us. Uh, so maybe that's what that nickname has in mind. Calvin said the word of God would thunder forth from them. And he goes on to say, and that thunder is heard in the present day from the mouth of John. John continues to thunder the voice of God in his gospel, in his letters, in his revelation. Um, John continues to thunder And Calvin goes on to say, as to his brother, there can be no doubt that as long as he lived, he shook the earth. James did not live long. Here you have the two apostles whose paths could not have been more different. James is the first apostle to be martyred for the faith. We read about his martyrdom in Acts chapter 12. He's beheaded by Herod Agrippa. Uh, James did not have a long career path as an apostle of Christ. Um, His fate was the fate that came to all of the faithful apostles except for John. John was the one who, according to what we know, died of a ripe old age. Every other faithful one of these men died a martyr's death. God calls us to different paths. Uh, James was called to suffer and die. When Agrippa saw that pleased people, he went and got Peter. was going to do the same thing to him, but God miraculously delivered him. Why deliver Peter and not James? It's one of those mysteries of providence. God has set a path for each one of these men that's different. Some of them we know nothing about from the pages of Scripture. We know they were disciples, and we know they were one of the twelve because they're on the list, but we don't read about them doing anything anywhere after that. Some are going to labor in obscurity. Um, be forgotten, right? The people they labor to, we don't remember, we don't hear about anymore. It doesn't mean that their ministry wasn't fruitful. It doesn't mean their ministry wasn't effective. When we read all of this, maybe the most perplexing of all is the choice of Judas Iscariot. Maybe as I was saying, all these different things about the disciples in the back of your mind was, yeah, but what about him? Did Jesus really desire him? He called him, and if he did desire him to follow him, why? Right? Here is an, a, one of the twelve who was chosen, the first church treasurer, right? He had the money bag of the disciples. And he was a hypocrite. He was a devil. He was never truly with Jesus. And in the end, he hands him over into the hands of wicked men. Why Judas? Why him? Well, there are many possible answers to this question. Um, We're not going to get into all of them at this late hour. But what's one of them? It probably is a warning to church leaders. 
um, to make sure that we watch out for wolves in sheep's clothing, for people who are unbelievers, um, to make sure they don't come into ministry. Dan Palmer and I are going out to a classes meeting this week in Loveland, Colorado. We'll be examining two men for ministry. Those exams together will probably take between eight and ten hours of oral exams. Why do we take so long doing that? Because we want to be on the lookout for the church um, to make sure unbelievers uh, do not take up office. It's, It's a warning for us. It's also a reminder to us that the work of God is not dependent on men. One of the things that is shocking to me, is maybe, you know, amazing to me as I think about Judas Iscariot, is that there may have been people who heard Judas Iscariot preach and were converted under his ministry. That he may well have gone out and preached the gospel with none of it in his heart, but having learned it aright from Jesus and preach it, and the Lord used it to change hearts and minds. There may have been people out there who, if you asked them, how'd you become a Christian? They would have said, I was converted after I heard a sermon from Judas Iscariot. There could well have been demon-possessed people who were relieved of their demon possession by Judas Iscariot. Right? He must have been doing everything the other disciples were doing. Otherwise, it would have been obvious who's not with them. Right? If G- Judas is never preaching and Judas is never driving out demons, then when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, they all would have been like, well, it's Judas, right? Because he doesn't do anything. But what did they all say? Is it I, Lord? And I think from the very beginning, the Lord has said, don't put your trust in men. Don't put your trust in men. We are men of clay feet at our best. But I think at the very beginning, he reminds us and assures us, but my work doesn't depend on men. I can bring the kingdom to bear through my good and faithful ministers, and I can bring it through unbelievers and apostates. The work doesn't depend on me. And if Judas Iscariot converted people, his work, his preaching converted people, it's all down to the work of God. If his authority to cast out demons cast out demons, it's all down to the work of God. And we should take comfort from knowing God doesn't depend on us. You men in here preparing for ministry, you should take comfort in the fact that God doesn't depend on you. You should take notice lest you turn out like a Judas. Um, And you should be warned not to take this up with an unbelieving heart. But I take great comfort from knowing that you don't depend on me. That God could strike me down when I leave here and his work would still go on. And that good work was still good work even when it was accomplished by an unbelieving apostate devil like Judas. What does it show us above all? Nothing can stop the coming of the kingdom. Nothing can stop the king and his work. The kingdom will come. The glory will appear because the king will do it. 
That's our hope. That's our help in the midst of affliction. And it's been through Jesus' faithful ministers who were faithful even unto death, these apostles, that the word of the kingdom has come down through the ages to us. That building on Christ the foundation and cornerstone, they have proclaimed to us in his name the good news of the kingdom. And we have believed and we have called upon his name. I pray that all here would hear that word and would repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who died to save us from our sins and who is coming again soon in glory to bring in the fullness of his kingdom. May he come quickly. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the power of Christ. We thank you for his commitment to your mission that he was not sidetracked in the world from doing what you had called him to do. But in the midst of his great mercy to those who were suffering and afflicted, he never renounced his calling from you to do your will, which was to save those who you'd entrusted into his care. We thankful, we're thankful that he lived faithfully, that he died for sinners, that he redeemed all who would believe in him from their sins. We pray that there would be none here who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, who repented and believed in his name, that everyone here would do that. And we thank you that not only did he reveal the glory of his kingdom in how he worked in this world, but he continues to proclaim that glory down through the ages. We thank you for those apostles and ministers who we know, whose names echo out to us in the annals of history. We thank you for those who will be forgotten, for the ministry of those who were faithful but who are not remembered anymore by the church. We thank you to know that you remember them and that your remembrance ought to be enough. We thank you that you have the power to work even through unfaithful people. Even though the church has been troubled throughout the the generations by many Judases, by many who revealed that they were never part of your kingdom, that they were unbelieving and apostate, we know that you were able to work even through them, that the good that they accomplished was not on account of them, but was on account of your work through them. And we're thankful for the reminder that this means your kingdom cannot be destroyed. It cannot be prevented. That you will see the work of the kingdom done. You will see the gospel preached. You will see it come into the hearts and lives of your people so that your true disciples are called and they follow and they follow forever. Thank you for the glory of the king and the kingdom that he brings Thank you for his work and his spirit who guarantees its fulfillment. We pray that you would speedily bring that day when we see the full glory of that kingdom and the consummate work of our Lord Jesus Christ. May he come quickly and may he find us faithful. Hear us, we pray in his name.